Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning, and it is a joy to see you here as we have uh, our presence form for the semester. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And, of course, that is a challenge that God has given to all of us. And so uh, my goal this morning is to hopefully uh, handle rightly the word of truth, uh, and respond to questions that have been submitted by you. Now, in addition to the questions that we've already received, there are two mics here in the center aisle. And so if there's something that uh, pops into your mind or that you had planned to ask uh, but forgot to uh, send it in earlier, come to one of the mics. I'll see you and be glad uh, to receive your question from uh, the floor. But a lot of questions here today, so let's get busy. A recent objection to me was that the gospel accounts couldn't be authentically written uh, by those who have their names attached to them because they were peasants, people from Nazareth, uh, fishermen who would not have been educated enough to write. Uh, they were told uh, what the Scripture said, and they weren't sophisticated enough to write these things. Uh, I tried to respond that Luke was a doctor, uh, but I was told that even a doctor didn't mean much back then, and he would not have had the aptitude to write one of the gospel accounts, and that the Scriptures are basically made up uh, to some degree. Uh, what would you recommend as a response to these type of questions? Uh, it was a little weird to hear someone respond how they had graduated from my school, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, albeit a while ago, uh, but we seem to not agree on much of anything theologically. They did add at the end uh, that they had progressed past all of that. Well, first of all, uh, Southeastern Seminary was a much different school many years ago. It was a school that was not committed to biblical inerrancy. Uh, it was a school that was sympathetic to the homosexual agenda. It was a school uh, that was occupied by many professors who were pro-choice. Uh, it was occupied by a school that even had professors that denied the virgin birth, uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the exclusivity of the gospel. So there's where we can start in terms of SEBTS in the past uh, and Southeastern Seminary today. Secondly, uh, clearly this person has been influenced uh, by writers such as Bart Ehrman, who teaches over at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, a former evangelical who walked away from the faith, uh, not really for these reasons, uh, though he initially said that, but in recent years he has more honestly acknowledged that his problem is theodicy. Uh, he just cannot believe that the God of the Bible uh, is real. Uh, an all-powerful God, an all-loving uh, God, when you look at all of the uh, pain and sorrow and suffering and evil that you find in the world. So really, that's Bart Ehrman's problem, not the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, there are several things I can say, and so let me just give you a couple of uh, books that you could read that I think would be very helpful here. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones wrote a book entitled Misquoting Truth, A Guide to the Fallacies of Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. 
Uh, I've also used a book in my hermeneutics class entitled Reinventing Jesus, which also responds to things like the Da Vinci Code uh, and attacks upon the reliability of the Gospels uh, by people like uh, Bart Ehrman and the Jesus Seminar. Uh, also, if you want a very scholarly book written by one of the preeminent New Testament scholars in the world today, uh, Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, The Gospel as Eyewitness Testimony, would be a valuable book for you to consult as well. And then finally, you can go online and just go to the airmanproject.com where a group from uh, the University of North Carolina have put together a series of videos and articles uh, and also suggested bibliography that I think responds very, very well uh, to those who would attack the reliability uh, and the authenticity of the Gospels. I think we have really good reasons for believing that Matthew wrote Matthew, that Mark wrote Mark as a, uh, I, as a uh, an, uh, secretary, uh, as one who gave uh, us a reliable uh, account of Peter's eyewitness experience of Jesus, I think Luke got much of what he wrote, both from Mary, from other apostles, especially the Apostle Paul. And, of course, John, like Matthew, was an eyewitness. And there is really good evidence that each of these is responsible for the four Gospels that we have. Second question, it is well known among faculty and students that you are a four-point Calvinist. What is your hang-up? <clears throat> With limited atonement, textually and otherwise, what problems, if any, do you have with Mark Driscoll and Bruce Ware's perspective of what they call unlimited, limited atonement? Well, working backwards, I have no problem at all with Bruce Ware or Mark Driscoll's position because they articulate my position. Uh, basically, they are both uh, modified Calvinists, four-point Calvinists, in that they affirm a universal provision, but a limited uh, application. Now, to be fair to those who do hold to classic five-point Calvinism, like my good friend uh, Al Mohler, uh, every evangelical, and this is going to play into where we go in a moment with uh, the uh, plethora of questions I was asked about Rob Bell and uh, his new book, Love Wins, but uh, every evangelical limits the atonement in some way. I limit the atonement in terms of its application. It is applied savingly only to those who repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ, which, of course, is another way of describing uh, the elect. But I do believe that the atonement, in terms of its intention, was multifaceted, and one of the intentions of the atonement was to provide a universal or to make a universal provision. Uh, why do I hold that? Well, I just can't get past texts like 1 Timothy 2, 2, which says uh, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I wrote a commentary on it. I read the uh, Reformed thinkers uh, on that particular verse and just did not find uh, any of their explanations satisfactory uh, to my understanding of the text. Uh, there are other texts like 2 Peter 2 and uh, 1 Timothy 2 that I just simply think uh, that the natural flow of reading the Scriptures would be that he indeed died for the sins of the world, but the application of the atoning work of Christ is only made to those who repent and exercise faith. Within that context, though, of my understanding of Calvinism, let me say this. I do believe that God does indeed uh, predestine and elect certain people to be saved, but that he does so in such a way that it does not violate our free will and moral responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. 
Now, you say, well, that leaves a tension. Yes, it does. Uh, that leaves it in sort of a, uh, a mystery. Yes, it does. And I would, again, argue, as I have previously, that that's what I think Paul does at the end of Romans chapter 11, where he has spent part of chapter 8, all of 9, all of 10, and all of 11 trying to help us understand God's sovereignty in the context of human responsibility. And at the end, he throws up his hands and says, bottom line, the ways of God are past finding out. I'm comfortable going with Paul. Uh, next question. Why do you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Well, that's easy because the Bible teaches it. No, I need to, <laughs> need to move on, need to be fair. Uh, what are the advantages of this view over a post-tribulational understanding? Well, my goodness, there are a lot of ways to address that. Uh, I do have, as two of my dearest friends, Al Moeller and James Merritt, who both hold to post-tribulationalism. And so I've often said to them playfully, I hope God rewards you according to your faith. And while I'm on the way up, I'll wave at you and tell you I told you so. So that would be one real distinct advantage to that particular position. Uh, let me come back at it another way. Uh, when it comes to eschatology, there are, as in every doctrine, Certain things that are bedrock, non-negotiable, and crystal clear. So, for example, the Bible is crystal clear that Jesus is coming again. He is coming historically. He is coming bodily. He is coming again. Furthermore, and this will get to where we're going in a moment, the Bible is crystal clear. There is going to be an eternal hell, and there's going to be an eternal heaven and Jesus is the deciding factor as to whether you go to one or the other. Those things are not up for uh, debate. Well, we can debate them, but you're going to debate them by redefining the Bible or rejecting significant portions of the Bible. So we'll again get to that in just a moment. So for me, uh, as someone who affirms without reservation the full authority, truthfulness, infallibility, and inerrancy of the Bible, those are the things that are non-negotiable. Now, as you know, if you're a student here, uh, we have faculty members that are premillennial. We have faculty members that are amillennial, and we even have one uh, misfit who is postmillennial, and uh, we are praying for his restoration and repentance. And, of course, we do have a significant number who are post-tribulational. In fact, I bet the majority of our faculty are post-tribulational, and then we have others that are pre-trib like me, and we may have a mid-trib, uh, one or two, but I'm not aware of it, which uh, you already should be recognizing what things we think really are essential and what things are not. So having said all of that, why do I hold to, uh, hopefully with grace and uh, respect for other views, why do I hold to pre-tribulationalism? Well, there are a number of reasons, but the most important one of all is imminency. Uh, if imminency is correct, then either one, like Greg Bill in his new book that's coming out, you have to redefine the tribulation and basically argue that we're in the tribulation right now. And I understand how people make that argument. That is the view of Al Mohler, who is a historical pre-millennialist. So he does believe that Jesus is coming back to the earth and will establish a kingdom on this earth. But uh, he believes that it's best to understand that we're in the tribulation uh, right now. And so if he holds that view, which he does, then he can also hold to imminency, which he does. Uh, there are others, though, who hold the post-tribulational view and would argue against imminency, and I find that to be extremely problematic. Furthermore, I think a natural hermeneutic would lead you to anticipate 
uh, a period at the end of time that is known as the tribulation and the great tribulation. I, I do anticipate at the end of time the revelation of a figure that the Bible refers to as the man of sin, the beast eye of the sea, and John in 1 John 2, 4 and 2 John verse 7 calls the Antichrist. And uh, I can't find them in history, and I can't find them today. Well, that's not the way to say it. I can find them plural in history. I can't find him singular in history. And First John makes it very clear that there will be a number of antichrists, small a, s at the end of the word, before there is a coming antichrist, capital A, no s at the end of the word. Uh, secondly, and I'll, I'll move on from here, I think a natural reading of 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through chapter 5, verse 11, would support the pre-tribulational position because the rapture is discussed and dealt with in chapter 4. Then, after that, uh, the eschatological day of the Lord is dealt with in chapter 5. And if, and if post-tribulationalism were the better view, I would have thought that he would discuss the day of the Lord first and then the tribulation after that. And so those are some reasons, but I'll be again the first to tell you that whatever position you hold in terms of the time of the rapture, it's going to be inferential. And uh, so uh, I've often said, I, I will fight you over the truth of the rapture. I will not fight you over the time of the rapture. That is a place where good, uh, godly, Bible-leaving brothers and sisters can uh, disagree. Uh, how would you respond to recent debates within evangelical circles concerning the gospel? Uh, how do you understand the gospel and its social implications? Do you find recent criticisms of David Platt, Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, and, and others to be accurate assessments of their articulation of the gospel? Well, um, let me deal with David Platt, who's a dear friend of mine, uh, because I know the attacks that have come against him uh, most clearly. Uh, do I think those who have criticized David's book, Radical, uh, for uh, allegedly adding to the gospel, uh, confusing us concerning the gospel, uh, adding works to the gospel, do I think that they are reading his book accurately? No, I don't. I think they're terribly misreading it. I think David is crystal clear that the gospel is an objective work accomplished for us by the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, wherein he bore in his body the full penalty of our sin and turned away from us the wrath of God. And that you repent and believe that, trusting in him, and you're saved, that's the gospel. But the gospel as an indicative always gives way to the gospel's imperatives. In other words, Luther said it well, we're not saved by faith plus works. But we are saved by a faith that does work. Say it another way. We are saved by faith alone. But we are not saved by a faith that is alone. And so if you read, for example, the book of Ephesians, Paul spends three chapters basically helping us understand uh, the gospel in a big kind of theological context. But then in chapter 4, he says, Now, on the basis of this, you ought to live out the gospel in this kind of a way. And so I think we have to make clear the difference between the gospel and the implications that naturally derive from the gospel. And having now read a radical twice, I don't see where David confuses that. 
Uh, I do know of some who perhaps confuse it, but I don't see it in the book itself. And so I think we need to understand that we keep the two together. It's basically Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is a good synopsis of what the gospel accomplishes. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, but... We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I think we have to be very clear in communicating the objective gospel, but at the same time recognize that there are natural outgrowths and implications of the gospel. And your particular generation is uh, very interested in things like uh, helping the poor, which we should have always been interested in. It's in the Bible. Uh, adoption, which we should have always been doing, it's in the Bible. Uh, creation care, we should have always been doing because it's in the Bible. My generation, and yours should not lose this, concern for the sanctity of life from uh, conception to natural death, uh, that's in the Bible. And so those things are positions and attitudes and even actions that we engage in, but is uh, adopting children uh, the gospel? No. Is feeding the poor the gospel? No. Is caring for creation the gospel? No. Is being an advocate for life the gospel? No. But because we have believed the gospel, we cannot help but also engage in those kind of things as well. And so I think that's the kind of balance that we ought to be looking for in this respect. Had a couple of questions about the role of women uh, in the church and in ministry and one was raised about the fact that uh, in chapel a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a woman read Scripture. She then invited everybody to stand up for the reading of Scripture. And uh, related to that was a question about, we settled the issue of women as pastors uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, but how do you feel about women teaching uh, couples Sunday school classes or other small group settings in which men are present? And uh, the person who raised the question about chapel uh, noted what we have in First Timothy chapter 2, uh, where he says, I do not suffer a woman uh, to teach or exercise authority over men. And also what you have in First Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, where in the context of tongues and uh, sitting in judgment over prophetic announcements, women are commanded to be silent. Uh, I would say to uh, my student, you left out 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so putting all that in context, uh, and he also said, I understand you hold to the Danvers statement of biblical manhood and womanhood. All of our faculty hold to that statement, and I'm even on their board of advisors. So all of that out there on the table, uh, what would I say? Uh, I would say that the Bible, again, is crystal clear. God has called men to a leadership assignment both in the home and in the church. And men are to take the leadership role as servant leaders in the home and also in the church. Therefore, could a woman, should a woman be in an authoritative teaching position over men in the church? Absolutely not. So I'll work backwards. Um, do I think it is good um, for a woman in a small group or Sunday school class to be teaching men? No, I do not. You say, what if you have team teaching? My experience has been 99 times out of 100 when you have team teaching, the woman is the dominant teacher. And uh, that is not good for building strong, masculine, godly males. And so I think that uh, women are well taught by women in that context. I think men are well taught by men in that context. And if I were pastoring a church... Um, starting from scratch, it's easier. If I inherit it, I have to 
pastorally worked through to get there. And if you want to talk to someone who did that well one time, talk to Dr. Keithley, who inherited a church where there were women teaching mixed Bible classes. And in a gracious, patient kind of a way, uh, he moved them away from that. And I would as well, because I don't think that fits the biblical pattern. But 1 Corinthians 11 is quite clear that under proper authority, a woman may both pray and prophesy in the gathering of the congregation. And so having a woman, and secondly, we're not a church. We're not a church. We're seminary and a college, so we're not a church. But even if we were a church, do I think that uh, what happens when a woman sings or when a woman even reads Scripture or even having a woman pray in the gathered assembly would be unbiblical? Absolutely not. I do not believe that at all. I think it would be perfectly appropriate uh, for me to have a woman read Scripture, have a woman uh, pray. Uh, Many of you know that last uh, semester... Carrie McDonald, uh, one of our uh, IMB missionaries whose husband was murdered along with three other friends, came and actually stood right here and spoke during uh, the uh, teaching time uh, of uh, this seminary. Uh, she did so under my authority. Uh, she did so in an exceptional kind of a way. Now, would I bring her or, or, or a litany of women here every week? No, I would not. I think that would violate uh, the principles of Scripture. But to have one speak occasionally fulfilling 1 Corinthians 11 of praying and prophesying in public. I don't find that to be inconsistent with the Bible or, for that matter, the Danvers Statement, though I do recognize uh, there's some who I think really would be better described as hierarchicalists and not complementarians who have a more rigid understanding in this area. And again, I'm going to go as far as I believe the Bible tells me to go, and then I'm going to stop. And uh, so that would be my my own understanding. Let, Let me say this practically, and then I'll move on. A lot of times in churches, what you also find is that women are dominant uh, in the area of teaching children. So it is women who keep bed babies, it is women who teach preschoolers, and it is women who teach uh, uh, boys and girls in grade school. Uh, do I think that that is, um, do I think those women are to be praised? Absolutely. Do I think that's a good pattern? No, absolutely not. I think that from the bed baby room all the way up, little boys and little girls need to be exposed to strong, masculine, godly men. And I'll be honest with you, I'd rather teach children than adults. They give evidence of being more intelligent. They are far more teachable and malleable. Uh, adults tend to be stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart unless God knocks them flat on their backside. They just don't pay attention very well, but children do. And so I think there's a great ministry there. It's not babysitting. If your people think that, you need to re-educate them. And what they're actually doing, even with little babies, is that they are loving and educating those children on behalf of King Jesus. And they can make a massive impact on those children. I love to tell the story. I do what I do today because of a sweet grandmother named Mrs. Calhoun, who when I was two, three, and four years old, kept the preschool room. I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and we had choir practice on Thursday nights for my mother back then. So I went on Thursday night too, and I loved to go to church because I would crawl up in Miss Calhoun's lap in a rocking chair, and she would open up Bible story books and read Bible stories to me. And then she'd walk me around and play with me, and then she'd sit me back down again and read more Bible stories to me. And I loved church. 
I love church because of that sweet lady who died when I was 10 years old, just loving me well uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Aiken, uh, what is today's biggest problem or struggle for young men in the college and seminary that hinders them from growing up to become a man who fears God? I believe there's a huge problem with the college students not growing up uh, and becoming a man. So my question for you is, what are the hindrances and the struggles that you see? Well, golly gee whiz, where do I start? First of all, they, you're, 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 a, you're, you're still a big baby because you have idols in your heart that you've never slain and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so as a result of that, you think that you have the right to be an extended adolescence and still play video games in your 30s and 40s. And where in the rift you would come to think that's what it means to follow Jesus in a radically devoted way, I don't know. Uh, that then leads to your priorities. And the fact of the matter is, many young men are so immature, they have the wrong priorities. They think that they're supposed to just have fun. They're supposed to live it up. Uh, they're supposed to just, you know, be happy. And uh, you have this uh, inordinate inability to take responsibility. Uh, and so what I would say uh, would be the best thing for many of you to do is to find you a good woman, get married, and have a bunch of kids. You will grow up. You will grow up in a hurry. And so, well, I'm not ready to get married yet. Well, I don't care if you're ready or not. Ready or not, do it. Ready or not, move on. Ready or not, grow up. Goodness gracious, what is this? I understand the world having this extended adolescence, but these guys who are here? I mean, guys, remember, God called Bill Wallace and Jim Elliott to be missionaries as teenagers. And so don't come saying, well, you know, I'm just you know, trying to figure out who I'm supposed to be. You're supposed to be a man of God, period. End of discussion. So now start pursuing a lifestyle that will lead to that. I mean, it just, it frustrates me to no end. At, and again, adolescence is a, is a modern day myth anyway. Now you need to start acting like a man when you're about 13, 14, and 15 years old. By the time you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you ought to be way down the road. And so some of you got some serious catching up to do. Well, fine. Start catching up. Stay in the Word. Find out what it is that God has called you to be as a man of God. Have a madly passionate uh, love for the Lord Jesus. Make sure that He is preeminent. I think Dr. Ashley is going to preach on that next week from Colossians 1, that He is preeminent in everything. And you can have all the fun in the world, but you have all the fun in the world doing something that really matters for eternity. Furthermore, let me remind you, you're not promised a long life. And if God, you know, decides to terminate some of your lives at like 29 when he terminated the life of David Brainerd and Jim Elliott, you know what? I think they lived good lives in a brief period of time. God terminates your life when you turn 29. What will you leave behind? It's a good question for us to consider. Jonathan Edwards said the wise, godly man will consider every single day his death and then live life in light of the fact that it could be that day. That's a good admonition for all of us to live by. All right. Huh. What do you think about the Rob Bell controversy? And I received like six or seven questions on that. Before I address it, Mike, I'm going to ask you to play a video from, as many of you know, David Platt is a dear friend of mine. David has been in India over the last uh, week and a half. And uh, David yesterday released a short video that 
somewhat addresses this. I think it's worth you looking at, and then I'll come back and respond to it uh, in a little bit more detail. So, Mike, share the video very quickly. Do we really believe that everyone who is not trusted in Christ for salvation will experience damnation when they die? I'm standing right now in northern India, home to 600 million people. They estimate that about 0.5% of the people around me are evangelical Christian. 0.5% who have trusted in Christ for salvation. That means 597 million people surround me right now who don't have Christ. Many of them are Hindu, worshiping endless false gods. Many of them are Muslims. Some of them are Buddhists. I'm actually standing right now near the border of Nepal and Tibet at a Tibetan Buddhist training ground. There's a lot of talk right now about universalism, a lot of dialogue and debate and discussion. It all revolves around what happens to people who die without Christ. I hope that no one who knows me as either pastor or person would question or wonder where I stand on this issue. The crux of the Bible is clear and the story of redemption is sure. The just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women in their rebellion. And he has sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection so that everyone who believes in him, who turns from themselves and trusts in Christ, will be reconciled to God forever. And likewise, the converse is true. Everyone who trusts in themselves and turns from God will be condemned by God forever. This is the gospel that was proclaimed by Jesus. This is the gospel that was proclaimed by Peter and Luke and Paul and John. This is the gospel that's been proclaimed by Christians for the last 2,000 years. And this is the gospel that's being declared and defended so well by so many over the last few weeks. But my question is, do we really believe what we're saying? These 597 million people, are all of them going to an eternal hell because they don't have Christ? And there's really only two simple options here. Either number one, we believe, Allah Rab Bell, that all of these people will one day experience God's everlasting love in heaven. Or number two, we believe, Allah Orthodox Christianity, that one day all of these people will experience God's eternal wrath in hell. And how we answer that question determines everything about how we live. The reality is, if we believe that everyone's going to be okay in the end, if we embrace universalism, however it is cloaked, then we're free to live our lives however we want, to sit back as easygoing Christians in comfortable churches, because in the end, all of these masses are going to be okay. They're going to be fine. However, if we believe that people around us, 597 million people in northern India, 6,000 plus people groups who have never even heard the gospel, if we believe that they are going to an eternal hell without Christ, then we don't have time to play games with our lives. and We don't have time to play games in the church. We have a mission that demands radical urgency. Here's the deal. Intellectual universalism is dangerous, thinking that in the end everyone is going to be okay. But functional universalism is worse. Living 
like in the end, everyone is going to be okay. So let's fight them both. In our heads, in our hearts, let's hold fast to the truth of this gospel. And in our lives, let's sacrifice everything we have. Our possessions and our plans and our dreams, our safety, our security, if necessary, our own lives to make this gospel known among all peoples. That is the only possible response for people who really believe this book. This book this morning debuted uh, nationally number two on the New York bestsellers list. I've read Love Wins. I have read multiple reviews of the book. Uh, in one sense, I, I'm glad the book is out there because it is going to allow conversation to take place. I was thinking if I saw some reading the book, how might I respond? And I think it would be easy to say, you know, that's an interesting book that addresses heaven and hell, but there's a better book that addresses it called the Bible. Could I take you to the Bible and show you what it has to say about heaven and hell? I'll say this, and then I'll get into some specifics. If Rob Bell is correct, then all of you prospective students here, you don't need to come back here. In fact, you've wasted your time being here. Why you would come to a seminary, sacrifice time, energy, and maybe even put your life in harm's way for the gospel makes absolutely no sense if Rob Bell is correct. Rob Bell is, as I, and I'll try to be as fair and objective as I can be with the book, he's committed uh, philosophically and theologically to a strong libertarian view of free will and really has no place in his theology for uh, a classic understanding of God's sovereignty and God's providence. Now, he might deny that, but again, he, he likes playing games with words. He, he likes telling stories. He likes being provocative. He likes, you know, uh, being uh, vague and unclear. But the bottom line is he is committed to radical libertarian freedom and therefore has no place in his theology for a sovereign God. That, that's one thing that, that needs to be clear. Uh, secondly, he has a very selectivistic hermeneutic. Uh, that he will utilize to cite Scripture that favors his position and ignore those that don't. In other words, uh, it is a well-written book in the sense that it's easy to read. You knock it out uh, in a couple of hours. It is a terrible book in terms of theological consistency and logical argumentation. But understand, Rob doesn't believe that theological consistency is important. And he thinks to even talk in the category of logical consistency means you've bought into kind of a Platonist, Aristotelian, Western way of thinking that we really need to undo and try to back out of. And so for him, uh, his uh, selectivistic hermeneutic for, is just fine. And, and therefore you find him in the book proof texting all of the time. Uh, thirdly, he has no place in his theology, none for the doctrine of God's holiness and especially God's wrath. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, he has a strong aversion to any type of sacrificial understanding of the atonement. Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, the whole emergent village crowd that has been moving in this direction for several years now could not with honesty sing the second song that we sang a moment ago. 
The idea of a bloody atonement they find, I'll use his word, toxic, repulsive. It no longer works well in a 21st century modern context where we don't sacrifice animals anymore. And so as a result of that, his view of God's wrath is non-existent. In fact, if you want to try to give him a little there, he'll say, well, God's wrath is restorative but not punitive. In other words, yes, God will deal with sin, but the ultimate end of his dealing with sin is full restoration and universal reconciliation. Now, if you're not familiar with theology, uh, I'll try to unwrap it, but let me apply some particular theological terms that I think would fairly describe uh, Rob Bell's position. Uh, he is a theological, soteriological inclusivist. Soteriological deals with the doctrine of salvation, and so he's very clear on that. He believes it is possible for someone to be genuinely saved. He would never use the phrase, he doesn't use the phrase born again. He probably wouldn't even really like the word saved, actually. So he would say that someone can come into a, a genuine, reconciled relationship with Jesus without even knowing Jesus. Therefore, if you are a good Hindu, a good Buddhist, a good Muslim, a good Jew, a good animist, a good atheist, then you are in good standing with this God who loves lavishly. And though we are saved through Jesus, it is possibly saved through Jesus without knowing Jesus. Which again, as David mentioned a moment ago, guts the, uh, at least in part, the motivation to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. By the way, as a segue, I like what David did. David made a distinction between two types of universalism, uh, intellectual universalism and functional universalism. I don't think Rob Bell's book is going to cause all that much trouble in 99.99% of the churches that you uh, serve I don't think that your people are going to buy into um, philosophical, intellectual universalism. However, your church is filled with functional universalists. They live their lives as if everybody is going to be saved. That's why 90% of our church members are... no. 98% of our bad design is here in America. That's why we only give 2.75 cents on the dollar to leave the borders of America to get the gospel to 600 million in India alone who do not know Jesus. And I'll say it again, the key to this are pastors. You're going to either get the heart of Jesus, get over your selfishness, your myopic perspective, some type of unbiblical thing that says, well, I'm just responsible for my little plot of ground in my little area, and therefore I'm going to keep all of it here for us, or you will begin to see the nations as Christ sees the nations, and you will change the way you do church, and you will put before your people continually the lostness of humanity and the fact that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. So he is a soteriological inclusivist who believes people can come to Christ without knowing Christ. 
And then what about this issue of universalism? Well, I think the most accurate way to describe Rob Bell, and again, I'm, I'm really trying to be fair, and I think some have been unfair here. I think it would be accurate to describe Rob Bell as a post-mortem, hypothetical universalist. A post-mortem, hypothetical universalist. You probably would like me to unwrap that, so quickly. Post-mortem means that even after death, people will have the opportunity to receive Jesus. Hypothetical, he does believe in the end, love wins. And so he holds out hypothetically that everyone will be saved. He's adamant that everyone can be saved even after death and into all of eternity. But because he is so committed to radical libertarian freedom, he says God will never coerce, force anyone to come to him and be reconciled with him. And so if you were to be so stubborn and resistant in your heart that you rejected the love of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, then you basically will experience your own type of hell. Now, he's very clear. He does not believe in a doctrine of hell as it is traditionally understood. He wants to redefine the word, and he uses it like we will use it in popular culture. Well, you know, right now, uh, what is taking place in Japan is hell on earth. What is happening right now in Libya is, is hell on earth. And just as there can be hell on earth in that kind of a way, because sinful people do sinful things, there can also be hell in heaven... And that's almost, in fact, that is how he says it. Uh, and you can live in that uh, reality because you choose to. But always realize there's always the door to come back to God in a reconciled <clears throat> relationship. And his hope is that eventually everyone uh, will uh, do that. It's very interesting to me that in his wide-ranging discussion of how we should be socially involved in things, he does not talk about the issue of abortion at all. And I have to say this, <clears throat> I'm not surprised where he is now because if you read his earlier book, um, Velvet Elvis, which was not a very good book either, you could see already that he was jettisoning inerrancy. Uh, he was jettisoning penal substitution. He was redefining the gospel. Since then, he has become a thoroughgoing advocate for egalitarianism. And he at least hints at it in those books. And I think there'll be a uh, little time before he will soon come out and fully affirm the acceptability uh, of the homosexual lifestyle for the professing Christian. I, I, I'm clear that he is headed in that direction as well. And so you say, well, gosh, th this is all new. This is not new. This is not new. This, this is one of the one of the benefits of being old, and one of the liabilities of being young. If you really want to read someone who articulates Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and Tony Jones and Doug Paget's views well, you will disagree with them, I hope, but you want to see it defended well. You need to go and read a theologian who recently died by the name of Clark Pinnock. How many of you know the name Clark Pinnock? Clark Pinnock was saying all these things in a far more sophisticated, a theologically defensible way 10, 20, 25 years ago. 
Rob Bell does it in a very popular way. You know, he's got a, he's got a, you know, cool glasses and does cool NUMA videos. And so he's now, you know, kind of come into that world, but he's not saying anything new. But he is absolutely wrong in the book when he says, well, I am just a part of one facet of the stream of, of Christian orthodoxy. That is not true. He is a part of the flow of church history. And so have there been in the past men who affirmed some form of universalism? Yes, and perhaps the most popular was a man by the name of Origen who was condemned as a heretic for his affirmation of universalism. The mainstream of orthodoxy has always affirmed that the Bible teaches that for those in eternity, there are two possible eternal destinations. One the Bible calls heaven, the other the Bible calls hell. Where did we get this idea? We got it from the person who talked about hell more than anybody else, and his name was Jesus. So here's the bottom line, and yes, I realize there will be a little bit of an edge to my statement, but I mean it to be that way. If I have to make a decision in terms of what I believe about the fate of everyone who dies, and I have to either go with, um, with Jesus, Paul, and John, or Rob Bell and Brian McLaren, I'm going to go with Jesus, Paul, and John every time. Basically what these guys are doing is they're read, Brian McLaren wrote a book last year, or just a couple years ago, called A New Kind of Christianity. That's exactly what they want. They want a new, redefined Christianity that they believe will make the gospel more palatable and more acceptable uh, in a 21st century context where we just cannot accept anymore the idea of a God of wrath. We cannot accept anymore the idea that God would punish people forever in a place called hell for simply rejecting His Son. That is just no longer acceptable, and therefore we've got to come up with a new kind of Christianity so that in the end, love wins and everybody's in. If I get to heaven and find out that is true, I will not be upset. However, there is absolutely no way that you can honestly read this book and draw those theological conclusions. So again, and I'll close with this because we're out of time, it comes down to what is your source of authority? Do you believe what you believe and do what you do because of reason? I just think this is the right thing. Because of experience, I just feel like this is the right thing. Tradition, this is what we've always believed and always done. Or do you finally say, I do what I do and I believe what I believe because God's Word says so? I don't think I'm smart enough to tell God what's right and what's wrong. There are parts of the Bible that make me terribly uncomfortable. The problem is not with God. The problem is with me. I plead with you, don't ever cross that line to do so. I believe is as we're seeing before our very eyes to commit spiritual, theological suicide. Let's pray and we'll be through. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I hate leaving and ending on a note like that, but Lord, there is a good thing about this book. It is going to raise questions. And we're going to have a chance now to use this as an opportunity to share the gospel. Number two on the New York bestsellers list. It was number one for a while through Amazon. So the book is being bought everywhere and people are reading it. And so now we have an open opportunity to even ask, have you read this book? 
called Love Wins. It talks about heaven and, and hell and what happens to people when they die. You know, that really is a great question, and it is a great question. The issue then becomes, who do we trust with the answer? And Lord, we have the perfect opportunity to say, well, you know what? Jesus talked a lot about heaven and hell. Would you mind if I take you to the Bible and show you what, what Jesus said? Lord, give us courage to speak for the truth. Give us grace and love in how we speak the truth. But Lord, no matter what the tides of modernity might be, either in the culture or in the church, help us, Lord, by your grace and for your glory, never to move one inch away from the truth revealed in Jesus and in your infallible and inerrant word. This we ask and pray in his name. Amen. And amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.